This week, we're re-releasing our Carolina Girls series. There are major developments to mention for Episode 3, including one of the three case solves we've been able to announce since the fall line began. Earlier this year, we released the following update in the homicide of Nishan Huff. According to ABC 13 News, the Greenville Sheriff's Office announced on June 14th that two arrests had been made in the cold case homicide of Nishan Huff. ABC 13 reported that a break in the case came when, quote, investigators re-interviewed existing witnesses and newly developed witnesses during the investigation. These interviews led investigators to two persons of interest, and subsequently, they arrested 53-year-old Frank Rozier and 38-year-old Brittany Nicole Goldsmith. They report that Rozier allegedly entered the apartment and shot Nishan, and that Goldsmith is accused of, quote, covering up the crime for Rozier by providing false information to law enforcement and intimidating a witness not to come forward. Greer today also listed the Paris charges. Frank Rozier was charged with murder and possession of a weapon during a violent crime. Brittany Goldsmith was charged with accessory after the fact. Since we offered that original update in June of 2022, there has been further information released in Nishan's homicide investigation. Fox Carolina has reported that, since his arrest, Frank Rozier has twice been denied bail. Our producer, Mora, reviewed public court records, and she noted that Rozier has been assigned a public defender. The last actions logged were a denial of bond on December 2, 2022, and in November, a pre-trial Brady motion. Mora's research uncovered that Rozier has a number of previous convictions in South Carolina, but that this is his first violent offense charge. Brittany Goldsmith posted bond and is currently out awaiting trial, despite Nishan's family asking that the court deny her bond of $25,000, noting, per Fox Carolina, that they believe her to be a flight risk. Per court records, no trial date has yet been set. This is part three in a four-part series. Please listen to Carolina Girls in order so that you may follow the intersecting storylines. This episode discusses violence against children, sexual assault, and details of crime scenes. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. To me, they shouldn't leave the parents out. The parents are asking because that, that's their child. If that was their child, they'd be asking questions. And I'm constantly, I was asking questions. Like I said before, they said, oh, this is a cold case. They work third shift. Okay. So I set my phone and go off at 1.30. For a whole month, I called them. And I never got a response. And I wanted to know why. I said, y'all like y'all don't care. I said, it's not a drug case. We already solved it. And I kept leaving messages after message, and I never got a response from them. So I feel like they just pushed it to the side all because of the neighborhood. Like I said, everybody living bad neighborhoods, not bad. In the Carolinas, there are so many cases that are almost closed where a suspect is known, rumored, 
even prosecuted, but where an element prevents the full resolution for a family and for a victim. There's the case of Shakima Cabbage Stock up in Dillon, South Carolina. Shakima was just 10 in 1993 and living with her mother and stepfather. According to court records, Shakima had recently accused her stepfather, Sam Harmon, of molesting her. The story actually has echoes of that of Monica Bennett, who we covered in season two of The Fall Line, one half of a pair of siblings who disappeared after her stepfather's alleged sexual assault came to light. Though Shakima's story was reported to social services, charges weren't pursued. Per ABC News 15, quote, that investigation found no wrongdoing on Harmon's part, and he was never charged. Another news story from ABC 15 described Shakima's reports as, quote, inconsistent. That investigation came a year before her disappearance, in July of 1993. ABC 15 reports that Sam Harmon, her stepfather, was the last person to see her. Just like Monica Bennett, Shakima Cabbage Stalk was with her brother and stepfather on the day she disappeared. Per WMBF, quote, According to reports, the 10-year-old and her brother went with Harmon to Turning Point Grocery Store in the neighborhood where they lived. Police say witnesses said that Cabbage Stalk was last seen leaving with Harmon, while Harmon says he left both her and her brother at the store. Police say Cabbage Stalk's mother reported her missing the next day, end quote. Though there were extensive searches, Shakima was never found. We found no further reporting concerning her brother. In general, there's little available on Shakima, even from the time when her stepfather was charged with kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder in 2005, after SLED and local law enforcement reinvestigated the case. Sam Harmon went to trial, but was acquitted of murder and sexual assault. He did receive a 12-year sentence for kidnapping charges, but, per the Greenville News, was given credit for the three years he served while awaiting trial. At the time of his kidnapping conviction, it was noted that he could qualify for parole in a year. And Shakima? She hasn't come home. All these years later, after a trial, and she's still there, on The Charlie Project, on NamUs, on NICMEC, only her age progression renditions ever-changing. According to ABC 15, her family believes that she's no longer living. They're sure she would have come home to them, to her brother and grandmother. Sam Harmon? He's maintained his innocence in her disappearance. And so the case sits, finished but not resolved. There's case after case in the Carolinas, especially from the 1970s through the early 2000s, where there's almost a solution hovering in the near distance, begging the question, why hasn't this been closed? In many instances, the answer is as logical as it is frustrating. Law enforcement can't move until they have hard evidence. Suspicion isn't enough. Now, that's assuming that a case is thoroughly investigated, and well, and by people who devote equal attention to all victims, no matter where they live or what race they are or what they do for work or their gender identity or their sexual orientation. In our focal case for this episode, the murder of Nishan Huff, 
there are a number of avenues of leads that might yet still be explored. Plenty of information that could be gathered to find the person or persons responsible for her death. She was killed on June 7th, 2006, just after graduating with honors from Francis Marion University, where she double majored in journalism and Spanish. Shan spent her life as a high achiever, taking active roles in everything from ROTC and chess club to her sorority. She dabbled in radio, studied abroad, was a physical fitness enthusiast who took everything seriously. Her family describes her as charismatic, beautiful, confident, someone who planned on buying a home at the age of 23. In fact, she was about to put in an offer on a home that June when she was shot, on a weekday, in the middle of the afternoon, in her own apartment. You've probably never heard of Nyshan Huff, who was called Shan by her family. We hadn't heard of her either, and we go looking for cases like hers. In 2020, it's fair to assume that our listeners understand that the media focuses on certain kinds of victims and glosses over others. That's not news. And listeners understand that it's common for a story to get buried when other news eclipses it. The story of a missing person or an unsolved murder, we all know that should make headlines. But it often doesn't especially if the case involves someone who isn't young, beautiful, female, achieving, or who isn't what the media might term a good girl. But Nyshan Huff was all of those things, and her story barely made a ripple outside of Greenville County, South Carolina. No one heard. And though social media has helped raise awareness of similar cases in recent years, its advent came just a little too late for Nyshan. Sometimes, disappearances and murders that don't make national news can also feel undercovered by local media, especially in comparison to stories that feature missing or murdered white women or girls. In 2006, in Greenville County, there were people who called for more coverage of Nyshan's case, but that outrage stayed local, without reach beyond the Palmetto State. In 2006, when Nyshan died, there was a parallel story, one that Nyshan's family can't help but think about. It's the case of Tiffany Sowers, who attended Clemson University. That's about a 40-minute drive from Greenville, where Nyshan lived. Tiffany, like Nyshan, was murdered in her own apartment. Tiffany, like Nyshan, was a high achiever, gifted in a number of subjects, a member of a sorority, a good girl. According to a tribute page, she was also part of a close sibling group, just like Nyshan. The Greenville News reported that, like in Nyshan's case, there was no forced entry into Tiffany's apartment. Nyshan's family and other locals felt that Nyshan's comparative media coverage was lacking, that for similar crimes with similar victims, they should have seen Nyshan's face as often as they saw Tiffany's. Tiffany's case is absolutely awful, heartbreaking, just like Nyshan's. Her murderer, Jerry Buck Inman, is a convicted sex offender who spent nearly two decades in prison before raping and killing Tiffany. According to NBC News, he was sentenced to death in 2009. 
Court documents revealed that he'd been out of prison for approximately nine months when he attacked Tiffany. DNA technology was a major factor in the case resolution. It's clear then and now that the Huff family, who are quoted in local news surrounding Tiffany's death, are glad that Tiffany's case got coverage because they believe that focus helped to solve her murder. They felt devastated for Tiffany's family and their loss. The Huff family just wanted, still want, the same attention and resolution for Nishan. But it hasn't come. Since 2006, they've held an annual candlelight vigil at the complex where she was murdered. That commitment is the reason that a few current news stories actually exist on Nishan's case. We visited Nishan's mother, Sacha, and her sister, Chiquita, in Greenville County. Sacha's house is warm and bright and airy and full of pictures of family. On one wall is a large canvas painting of Sacha and all of her surviving children. Two daughters, Chiquita and India, and a son, Ramel, and India and Chiquita's spouses and all the grandchildren. It's a gorgeous photo of a happy, close-knit family. But when you know Nishan's story, the sense that someone, something is missing from those pictures, it's everywhere. And in that absence, you imagine her there. Confident, talented, high-achieving, with plenty of friends and coworkers quoted in the articles that followed her death. And sorority sisters, too. So many people outside her family who she touched and could speak specifically of her dreams, her drive, her focus. For someone barely into her 20s, she had made quite the mark on Greenville County. In fact, Nai Shan was in the newspaper before her murder. In high school, she was profiled as a high achiever. Back then, she was thinking of becoming a dentist. And the internet still holds traces of her mid-2000s social media, mostly pictures from MySpace, Nishan graduating with honors, hand-signaling her Zeta Phi Beta sisterhood. Nishan dressed to go out. Nishan as a cheerleader. Nishan at an outdoor college event surrounded by white balloons. And older pictures, scanned, night digitized. Nishan with her sisters. In one, they pose in the family's living room, each holding up their Cabbage Patch dolls. When the children were little, the Huff family spent time living in both New York City and in Greenville County, South Carolina. South Carolina was home and where they eventually resettled in the late 1990s. Chiquita is the oldest sibling in the family, five years Nishan senior, so she has vivid memories of her sister as a small child. When we sat in her mother's breakfast nook in 2020, we spoke to them both about Nishan's early life. What do you remember about Nishan as a baby? Well, Shan was born with pneumonia and water in her lungs. So it was a struggle. Because when um, she was in the hospital for 14 days, and when she came home, they said, well, we'll let you bring her home, but you can only keep her 24 hours. But you're going to have to watch her just in case her breathing changed. So me and my mom, we, that's when I moved in with my mom, because they kept saying somebody got to watch her the whole time. So when I sleep, my mom would be up. Then my mom would sleep, and then I would be up. <laughs> like, wow, this is, how, how long is this going to last? And after 48 hours, they let us keep her at home all together. She was just tiny. 
Yeah, even when she was in high school, she was like 90-something pounds. 93. 93 pounds. So she was always petite. And even as a little one, she was just like, she just stopped growing. That's what it looked like. She was so petite. Which is interesting because it sounds like she was a spitfire. Can y'all describe some of the things she really enjoyed doing as a child? She used to love to double dutch. We had lived in New York, and she learned how to double dutch, so she loved double dutch. Um, we came back, and she was on the chess team in high school, so she loved playing chess. Athletics, chess, ROTC. I mean, she seemed talented in lots of different areas. Cheerleader. And, busy. <laughs> mm-hmm. and I guess, like my mom said, she came in the world fighting. So she would just always have that in her, you know, just to go get them attitude. She wasn't afraid of nothing. Nyshan and her sister India were close in age, and they were close friends too. We spoke to India, who lives out of state by phone. So we were, we were just extremely, extremely close. She was certainly my best friend. Um, definitely uh, a protector because my mother made sure she knew that, you know, she was supposed to look out for me and take care of me since we would be the ones that you'd plan somewhere together that you don't leave your sister. You don't let anyone bully your sister. You know, you always check on her. Chiquita, their older sister, remembers Nyshan, even from childhood, as having incredible drive. And I would ask her, she, her, her willpower was so strong. She used to suck her thumb and she was like, I don't know if it was like 10 or 11, but she's like, when I turn 10, I'm never sucking my thumb again. That's what my sister said. And then when she turned 10, she didn't suck it anymore. And if she say something, that's what she did. It was just, it was no going back on it. And I remember when I was in high school, she helped me lose weight. Um, she would run with me every morning. We would get up 4.30, 5 a.m. and go run around the block in New York in the cold. And um, after I dropped my weight, and she she's like, well, I don't need to go anymore. You got it. And I was like, well, how do you stop eating donuts and stuff? She said, I just, in my mind, I think if I eat that, I'm going to wear it on my hip. So she wouldn't, she could literally program her mind. She's very strong-willed. As we mentioned, Nyshan was profiled, actually twice, as a high achiever in Greenville County. In those articles, she discussed various possible college plans and her scholarships and awards. She first had considered following older sister Chiquita to Furman University, though she eventually chose Francis Marion, and they both pledged the same sorority. Their younger sister India would eventually do the same. Even with their five-year age difference, Chiquita and Nyshan shared a lot, including an apartment they rented one after the other on Furman Road. The complex where the apartment is located was, and still is, made up of two sections of apartments, almost like two separate neighborhoods. According to the Greenville News, residents referred to the back section as Cedar Heights and the front as Boulder Creek though collectively the 200-unit complex is officially just called Boulder Creek. The complex was and is designated as affordable housing. When Nyshan lived there, the front section, Boulder Creek, was largely populated by senior citizens. 
mostly because those units were one bedroom. The back section was full of young families and, so Nishan's relatives tell us, more young adults in general. Chiquita had lived in the apartment during college, which helped her save money as she worked and took classes. And it had been a great situation. So it made sense for Nishan to move in after Chiquita moved out. The plan was for Sister India, who'd stayed there for a while when she was younger, to move in after Nishan. The one-bedroom layout was perfect for them, and none of the sisters had problems. Not until 2006. Chiquita can remember Nishan socializing with and playing with the kids in the neighborhood, mostly double Dutch, and that she was friendly with the elderly people who lived around her. But their mother says that Nishan was careful, too. She kept her doors locked and would run up to the second floor to look before she opened the front door for a guest. According to her mother, Nishan had a scary experience in childhood that informed her approach to personal safety. When Shan was little, when we lived in New York, she went to the door to open the door for the pizza guy. And the guy came in our house with a gun. So from that day on, Shan would never leave a door unlocked. She was paranoid about unlocked doors. So you know it was strong with her. She would have. She got to see exactly who it is. She thought it was the pizza guy and it was not the pizza guy at the door. So she got to see who it is before she even opened the door. She she didn't peephole, no. She got to see from a distance. So I kept telling the police, she's not going to just let anybody in. I'm sorry, because I can be knocking on the door and I used to hear her running up the steps. Now you say, don't you run up them steps. For most of her time there, she didn't feel unsafe, but she was practical. The neighborhood had a fairly high crime rate, and there had begun to be more crime in the complex itself. There were shootings in both 2004 and 2005, with the latter resulting in a death. During that time, the Greenville News interviewed several residents concerned that violence and illegal activity had been seeping into their formerly quiet complex. They said they wished that on-duty deputies would patrol. According to the leasing company, it was off-duty officers who were paid to keep watch on the complex. The apartments had parking around the back of the building, and that's where Nishan left her car, which made her mother a little nervous. I used to tell Shan, why you come in so late at night in the back door? So, oh, mom, ain't nobody going to bother me. I said, well, why you come in the back door? Because she said, that's where I park at. So it was quicker coming in the back door. And I used to thought it was scary coming in the back because there's nothing across from the back but woods. I didn't think that would happen until in the middle of the day. I was always worried about the middle of the night. Nishan had plans to move. She'd been saving for quite a while, putting aside funds from her jobs at Outback Steakhouse and Red Lobster to get enough together for a down payment on a house. She was also deciding what to do next. With her double major degrees in Spanish and journalism, she thought that she might go into broadcast news. But according to the local paper, she'd also told friends that she might eventually purchase a franchise restaurant, probably an Outback Steakhouse. It's unusual for someone so young to buy a house, even before the market collapse of 2008. But older sister Chiquita is a real estate agent, and she had expert advice. Yeah, she was um she was in her apartment, you know, after she had graduated and I just like it's time it's time to move on, you know. 
you need to buy a house. And she was like, okay. You know, she was just excited about it. And we're in the process of looking in the first deal that she had. It fell through, the financing fell through because um, it was um, too close to a pole. It was too close to a pole. And the lender said, we're going to have to, you know, we're not going to be able to write on that one. So we was actually looking for something else. And I kind of hated it. I just felt like we needed to do it right away for some reason. I just had that off that we need to do it immediately. And so she was in the process and first still didn't go through. And, you know, I always kind of think like, what if she would have got out of that apartment before anything happened to her? Do you feel like you were consciously aware of her safety or it was just sort of an unknown feeling like we need to get her into a house? Um, it was actually, I don't know. It was just like when I look back at it, it was like, it was more of a, it's like God was telling me that, I don't know if he was preparing me or what, because the the last day that we actually met before she was killed, I heard an audible voice and it was so loud that I was looking in my car around like, who is that? It was so loud. And it was like, pray for your sister. And I looked like, who's that? You know, I'm looking like, and so it said it again, pray for your sister. And um, we we was meeting at a park. And when she got out of the car, because she was going to get in the car, we was meeting at the park so we can ride together. And when she got out of the car, I reached my hand out and I said, God, May today my sister find the perfect home. And um, I didn't think any more about it. And then, you know, we got in the car and we looked at the house and she liked it. And I didn't want to make that decision for her. I said, well, you think about it. And if this is the house for you, you call me back. However you understand Chiquita's experience in the car, a feeling, a premonition, a message, she knew she wanted her sister out of that apartment. That meant Nyshan's boyfriend moving out of the place, too. Though Nyshan had lived there alone for most of the lease, she'd gotten into a relationship and, eventually, her boyfriend had moved in. As far as the Huff family knew, Nyshan's boyfriend had planned on living with her in the new house. So, he was sharing the apartment with Nyshan in June of 2006 and they were both home at some point on the afternoon of Nyshan's death. Now, the family didn't know him well, so they haven't gotten many details from him concerning what follows. It was the summer after graduation, and Nyshan, deciding on a future, was getting out of her apartment. So she was in a liminal space between everything and deciding where her future lay. There was nothing special about that week in June, except that it was full of Nyshan's plans for her next steps. We need to focus on the final day of her life, the 6th of June, and the events as the family knows them, and as are presented in the law enforcement timeline, which was eventually published in the Greenville News. We reached out to the Greenville County Sheriff, but were unable to schedule an interview before the publication of this episode, and our FOIA has yet to be fulfilled or denied. So, those published accounts are the limit of our knowledge of law enforcement's handling of the case. Nyshan's sister, India, her best friend, talked to us about the weeks and days leading up to Nyshan's death 
and whether she knew of any trouble. We really talked about pretty much everything. And just in being as, as close-knit as we were, which I guess this kind of ties into a little bit of what went on, because there were so few things we didn't tell each other, you know, some of the theories that, that came up just didn't, didn't sit well with me because it's like she would, she would tell me that. You know, I, I would have, I, you think that anyway, that I would have known that. We just kind of had this thing where even if you were doing something that you're trying something new or going to a new place, you'd be like, hey, I'm going to club such and such or I met so-and-so or, I mean, just, I don't know, just little stuff. We always, we always told each other about, so it's hard to think that there was too much going on in her life that I didn't know about because I know there was very little going on in my life that she didn't know about. And you were a teenager when Shan was living in the apartment. Did you spend much time hanging out there with her? So I kind of, I was late teens and like early 20s. Cause I was I was 21 when she was killed. Um, but yeah, I spent a lot of time over there too. I lived over there a couple of years um, with her and with her and Kita. So I spent... Um, I spent quite a bit of time out there, not towards the end because I was away in college living in uh, Columbia uh, at the time. But, yeah, we all spent a lot of time there. Do you remember in the days leading up to her murder um, anything that stands out in your memory? I don't remember. There there was nothing that stood out uh, that would have, you know, made me worry or be concerned. Our last conversation, Shan and I played phone tag the, the last couple of days um, before she died. Um, and it was, hey, let me call you right back. I'll leave a voicemail. Hey, call me when you get this. It was, And it wasn't like an emergency call me when you get this. We literally, we played phone tag the couple of days before she died. And next thing you know, I get a call, you know, and I was a little remorseful after the fact, because I felt like, man, I should have prioritized those callbacks. Um, but no, nothing stood out. None of the missed calls were like, I really need to talk to you, call me back. And none of mine were pressing either. It's just, you know, we catch up when we talk every couple of days and we just kind of were playing phone tag at that moment. It was, it was nothing significant that I can think of. Back to 2006, a Tuesday in June. It was 83 degrees at the height of the afternoon. Bright, dry, easy to see what was going on outside from a window if one happened to be home. And on Naishan's side of the complex, plenty of people were. Remember, that's where the senior citizens were mostly gathered in those one-bedroom units. We don't know exactly what Naishan was doing between 3 and 4 p.m., except that she was home, so not at work at Outback. The Greenville News reported that though Naishan's boyfriend had been home with her around 3 p.m. on June 6, he left for a short period of time. It was reported in the paper that he went to pick up his daughter from school and returned after about 20 minutes to the apartment. But Naishan's family remembers him picking up his daughter and then going on to the barbershop. This information was relayed to them later Afterward, when they say he told them about something strange that had happened. Chiquita, Naishan's sister, remembered that Naishan's boyfriend said he'd come home early from the barbershop because he thought that something might be wrong. 
I remember this here that um, he came home and he said it on the news too that when he came home, she had called him. Um, she called him. He got a call from her and she didn't sound right. He was at the barbershop with his daughter. He had just left not too long ago, left the apartment, picked up his daughter. And then um, when he got the phone call, he rushed back to the apartment. Remember, he said that she sounded like something wasn't right. Nyshan's family says that they haven't been told the precise details of that phone call that Nyshan's boyfriend claimed to have received at the barbershop. They just know that he and his daughter arrived home soon after. It was reported by the family and the Greenville News that he arrived back at the apartment around 4 p.m. A spokesman quoted in a June 8th article, Lieutenant Shea, says it was about 4.15. Later, a published law enforcement timeline would put the discovery at 4.20 and the first call to 911 at 4.26. On that Tuesday afternoon, a quiet and bright day, Nyshan Huff had been shot multiple times in her own kitchen at the back of her apartment unit near the back door. She was just 22 years old. The Greenville news coverage seems to imply, though we can't be sure that was the intention, that a neighbor was the first in the apartment and that the door was open when that neighbor arrived. The neighbor later indicated to reporters that she'd heard screaming, put on her shoes, and come over. But the family tells us it was actually Nyshan's boyfriend and his daughter who were first at the scene, and that the screaming referenced in that article was likely that of the daughter who saw Nyshan's body. There may have been a number of neighbors who came into the apartment before police arrived. We can't verify that, but both by the family and by newspapers, it's been mentioned as a possibility, which would, of course, make the crime scene more difficult to process and investigate. Chiquita, who, as you'll remember, had also lived in the same apartment, said that it would have been easy to hear screaming and gunshots, though that wasn't specifically reported, because the walls were thin and the units were laid out as attached townhomes and shared walls. That female neighbor, who claimed to be first on the scene, she told reporters that Nyshan had been shot three times in the head, though in those earliest articles, the coroner declined to comment on the precise placement of the wounds and exactly how many there had been. He did verify that Nyshan had died of gunshot wounds. That afternoon of June 6, Nyshan's family were engaged in their everyday lives, shopping, working, and not expecting the news that would transform their lives forever would lead to grief that they hadn't imagined possible. Nyshan's mother still remembers when she got that call. And it happened in the middle of the day, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, on a Wednesday. And I just couldn't believe it. Because I was in Walmart when my aunt, when it happened, they was calling me, and I didn't get no signal in Walmart. And by the time I got the message, India had them come from Columbia. That's how long it took me to get a signal. How far is Columbia from? Hour and a half, about an hour and a half. Nyshan's sister, India, received her own call. She was living over in Columbia. She told us about those moments when we interviewed her on the phone. She was at work that afternoon at a daycare center when Nyshan's boyfriend called her. And I could hear him, but it sounded like laughing. And then I immediately found out he was crying. He wasn't laughing. Um, 
and he said, um, he was, what was it? he was like, she, she's gone. What he said, she's even, he's like, she's dead. She, they shot her. They shot her is what he was basically saying. So I was like, what are you saying? What are you talking about? And he was like, they shot her. Somebody shot her. And I, I remember saying she might not be dead. Called the police. Now, whether he had already called the police before he called me, I don't know. I'm just hearing, you know, my sister's boyfriend tell me that she's gone. They shot her. So, um, I said, call the police. Maybe she's not dead. Um, and then I can't remember when we got the phone, if I said I'm on my way or what, but I did. When we got off the phone, I called my boyfriend to meet me so I wouldn't have to drive by myself. And he wasn't that far from my apartment complex, put gas in my car, and I started driving to Greenville. Nishan's mother, Sacha, arrived at her apartment to face down any parent's worst fear that something had happened to her child. She remembers the scene as chaotic. It didn't seem real because they never let me see her body. Until she got to the funeral, I kept saying, I need to go in. They kept saying, no, you don't want to go in. So I said, oh, yes, I do want to see it. And I always wanted to see, because, you know, they were taking pictures, and then I always wanted to see. But right now, I don't have any closure because it's, it's I don't know everything that happened. I just want to know why. That's all I kept saying was why. Who who was it that was preventing you from seeing your daughter? The police, they wouldn't let us in. Police. When she was still in the apartment? Yes. Forensics. Yeah. Crime scene or whatever, but, I mean, it's your daughter. They could have maybe escorted you. I don't know. No, they said we had to verify our picture. So they brought brought out and said, is this her? I said, yeah. I said, no, let me go in. They kept saying, no, you can't go in. Because so many people had ran through the apartment, and they didn't want no more people coming in. It was a crime without a clear motive or suspect. Nishan was not robbed. She was not personally involved in illegal activity and didn't do drugs, though her mother told us that was the initial theory in the case that Nishan might have been involved in drug crime. We don't have access to the coroner's findings, but we can share what the family told us, that the only thing that was found in Nishan's system was Tylenol. Her mother feels that the attitude toward Nishan changed after those talks results. But as the hours stretched into days and then weeks, little news was forthcoming. Local news articles began to focus on investigators' calls for tips even as neighbors described Nishan as, quote, a good girl who didn't deserve that and who worked every day. There was a tip line in place, and by mid-June, the Greenville News reported that local authorities had followed up on at least 20 leads, but that by mid-July, tips had reportedly, quote, slowed down. Nishan's family marked her birthday that July with a public plea for more information for tips. The next local news article covering Nishan's murder came in March of 2007, nine months after her death. In that Greenville News report, her sister Chiquita is quoted as feeling that the neighbors in the Boulder Creek complex had to know something, but that maybe they were afraid to come forward because of retribution or for fear of being seen as snitches. Quote, I want to let people know that it's okay to call in, she's quoted as saying. During that first summer, 
Nishan's family watched as movement came quickly in the Clemson case, the murder of Tiffany Sowers. And though they certainly wanted that for Tiffany's family, for her murder to be solved, they couldn't help but wish that Nishan's case was seeing the same kind of movement. They had so many questions. What was the motive? Was there DNA at the crime scene that could identify Nishan's killer or killers? Who were the suspects? Nishan's story had appeared regularly for a few weeks after her death, then less often, then rarely. And the family still didn't have any answers. According to reports from 2006 and 2007, the Huffs were feeling frustrated by the lack of regular communication regarding the investigation. And they worried that Nishan's case was not getting the public focus that it should have. The Huff family and other locals felt that if Nishan had been living in a different place, if she'd been white, then she'd be getting more attention. After all, she had everything that pushes a victim to the forefront. Beauty, achievements, accolades, a strong support system. And in the years that followed, as we told you, the family's yearly vigils were largely the only times her name resurfaced. To this day, there have been no publicly named persons of interest or any developments that the family is aware of in her case. In the nearly 14 years since Nishan's murder, plenty has changed for the Huff family. As they mark their milestones, they can't help but wonder what she would have been doing, what she would have accomplished with all of her drive and talent. Most of all, though, they miss her. Her mother especially thinks about Nishan at the holidays, one of Nishan's favorite times of year. She especially loved holiday cooking. Can you talk about the, the changing nature of your family? You want to talk about it first? Wow. <laughs> it was kind of hard because her favorite dish was macaroni and cheese. And I guarantee at least five or six years went by before I ever made another macaroni and cheese. Because it was like, she'd always say, Mom, call me when the macaroni and cheese come out of the oven. And I was like, I don't have nobody to call when the macaroni and cheese come out of the oven. So I stopped making macaroni and cheese. I did. I, I just couldn't do it anymore. Because she would sit down and eat a plate of nothing but macaroni and cheese. I don't care what... What occasion it was, we had macaroni and cheese. She had one plate with just macaroni and cheese on it. And so it kind of changes some of the things that we would do at dinners. It was always felt like somebody was missing. And small as she was, she would eat a lot. She would eat a whole sweet potato pie. I mean, she would just eat all this. It was like, where's the food going? You know, we would joke about it. But our life has changed tremendously because um, we've added to the family in, you know, in every way, you know, I got married, my sister got married, and we had children. And, you know, my my daughter is like, she's always asked me this today. She was like, what did Aunt Shan like? And I'm like, why does she keep asking about Aunt Shan today? Because I was braiding her hair. And she's like, did Aunt Shan let you braid her hair? I was like, yeah. She said, well, did Aunt Shan sit still? I'm like, yeah. You know, like. Where is this coming from? But it's just now we don't have her to meet the kids, you know, to to meet. Even our wedding, she wasn't able to be in our wedding. 
You know, my sister and my brother both were in my wedding. My sister wasn't, she was missing. And it's really tough because, you know, just on a daily base, you know, you're okay. But when those holidays come, because, you know, like during the week, you're just kind of, you talk to your siblings, but you kind of move it along. But then it's like the holidays, you know, oh, we're going to be here. Are we going down to mom's? Are we going somewhere? And then that person's not there and you're just kind of like, wow. That's when it hits and you just have pictures and memories and it's not easy. It's not easy. Because you just like you, you didn't really get to, you know, if you want to turn the hand back, it's kind of like, what would you say? Or did you already say everything, you know? I've always told my sisters I love them. I don't ever want to feel like I should have told them I loved them, you know, to make you wonder about it. But, yeah, just not having her here for those special moments, it's tough. Holiday, tough. How has this changed you as a person and now as a parent? As a person, it just kind of... It made me realize um, just after everything that wasn't crazy that I do hear from God. Um, that was one thing um, because I think all my life I was thinking I was crazy because I would tell people I hear from God. And it's like, no, you only hear from God once in a lifetime. That's not a everyday thing. But it kind of brought me closer spiritually to God, you know, just knowing that I do hear His voice. Um, and then as a person and a mom— it's just, I don't know. I just, I think I'm, I would have been a great mom regardless. But, you know, it just kind of made me cherish those moments, those special moments with my kids. Um, just kind of cherish those little moments with them. Did you find yourself changing as a mother in terms of protectiveness um, with your remaining children after Nishan's death? I got that kind of like that when India joined the military, and I was like, why she joined the military? I always lost one child. Last thing I need her to be in the military, you know. And when she would say she was going here, I used to always be on my phone or on the Internet looking up different stuff, like what's going on in this place? What's going on here? Why she going there? What's going to happen when she get there? I want to know the weather. And she was somewhere, and she couldn't answer her phone, and I think I was blowing her phone up. So after that... When she goes somewhere, she don't tell me. I had to find out. We sitting down at the table at a gathering, and she talking about it. I said, why you didn't tell me? She said, Mom, because you just blow my phone up. Because I want to know what's going on. Now my son's in the military. He's in Utah. And I was like, God, he's so far away. If something happened to him, how am going to get to him? He's too far away. And it's like, wow. I said, well, Keita, she's still here in Greenville, so I can reach her. But the other two, I can't reach them. They're in the military. It's a lot of thing changes. Nishan Huff's case can be solved. There were people at home in the complex when she was murdered. It's been 14 years. Perhaps those who were afraid to speak out in 2006 would feel more comfortable coming forward today. If you or anyone you know have any information concerning the June 2006 murder of Nishan Huff, please contact the Greenville County Sheriff at 864-271-5210. And if you have any information concerning the other cases mentioned in this episode, 
please call the following numbers. To help authorities locate Shakima Cabbage Stock, please call the Dillon Police Department at 843-841-3707. Next time on The Fall Line, the final installment in the Carolina Girls series. You'll hear about the disappearance of Aaliyah Bell in Rock Hill, South Carolina, as well as other cold cases from both states. Aaliyah's case, dating from 2014, is the most recent that we've ever covered. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support the show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks go out to Angie Dodd. And thanks also to Megan Chester. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced, mixed, and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, and Jess Watford. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. 